I invite you to turn to Psalm 16 in preparation for the Lord's table. We'll get, Lord willing, get back to Genesis next week. Uh, Psalm, I think I said Psalm 16, oh, Psalm 36. Psalm 36 is the correct number. And I'm going to read all 12 verses. Holy Scripture says, Psalm 36, verse 1, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is God's word and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for these words which you have intended for our sanctification in our walk with you. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would shine the light of your truth upon our hearts and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 36 is a beautiful passage to ponder as we come to the Lord's table. In the first section, verses 1 to 4, David reflects on the characteristics of wicked people. Perhaps it strikes you as strange that David spends one-third of the psalm reflecting on the nature of the wicked, but what he's, what he's doing here is, is very important for at least three reasons. Uh, first, the fact of the matter is that we are surrounded by wickedness on a large scale. We cannot pretend that it is not there. For a long time in our own society, uh, we have been promoting a materialistic and sexualized view of the world which leaves people's souls shriveled up. June was Pride Month, which is wrong on multiple levels. To begin with, God abominates human pride any time that men and women make much of themselves and their own doings. On top of that, Pride Month is celebrating moral rebellion against God's design for life. 
and to make a bad situation worse there is the ubiquitous flying of the pride flag which takes the rainbow something that God intended as a sign of his mercy to sinners and have turned it into a defiant celebration of wickedness the rebellion that kind of rebellion or any kind of rebellion always comes down to the same basic question did God actually say from Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 there is no fear of God before his eyes therefore the wicked man has no regard for God's standard God teaches mankind about life and marriage and humility and grace the kind of grace that covers iniquity and cleanses sin but mankind spurns these good gifts and pursues anti-grace anti-family anti-life anti-humility which is pride the kind of pride that celebrates iniquities and pressures other people to make the world a safer place for wickedness the problem of course is that a world of increased wickedness is not a safe place at all so the first reason that David's reflection on evildoers is important is because we're surrounded by wickedness the second reason that David's reflection on evildoers is important is because this bent toward evil is in each and every one of us uh, when when Paul described the sinfulness of all human beings in Romans chapter 3 he says there is no fear of God before their eyes he's talking about all of us in an unredeemed state and he's virtually quoting from Psalm 36 verse 1 in and of ourselves we the sons and daughters of Adam are shot through with sin the difference between the wicked Psalm 36 verse 1 and the upright of heart verse 10 is that the wicked in verses 1 to 4 are unrepentant they are still stuck in their wickedness the upright of heart are formerly wicked people who have discovered the grace of repentance however the upright of heart are still vulnerable our our hearts can still get stirred up in the ways of sin in the ways of sin and we can give in to temptation David is an upright man he wants to continue in that uprightness but he is surrounded by the wicked and he is not immune from their schemes further on a physical and social level the wicked really do endanger the righteous and this leads me to the third reason why David's reflection on the nature of evildoers is so important when you are surrounded by and opposed by wickedness and when wickedness can be stirred up in your own heart you need spiritual and moral clarity we need to have a clear view of what the wicked are up to we need to see clearly so that we can distinguish truth from error righteousness from wickedness good from evil wisdom from folly without moral clarity you will get sucked into the moral confusion and the moral chaos but with moral clarity and moral conviction you can cry out to the Lord for his gracious assistance which is exactly what David does near the end of Psalm 36 so what characterizes the wicked man first the wicked man's heart is attentive to sinful words transgression 
is speaking to the wicked man in the depths of his heart, and the wicked man is listening. He should be listening to the Lord, but instead he's listening to sin. Second, the wicked man does not fear God. He doesn't stand in awe of God. He's not overwhelmed by the majesty of God. He isn't hemmed in by God's reliable words. Instead, the wicked man laughs at the heavens and floods the world with his ambitions and lusts. Third, the wicked man fools himself into thinking that he will get away with his iniquity, verse 2. The contrast between the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 is profound. Before his eyes, he has no fear of God, but in his own eyes, he has a flattering view of himself and his own opinions. The wicked man has the illusion that he can sin and get away with it. He assumes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. And lest you think that this mindset only affects dictators, mob bosses, drug dealers, and human traffickers, Jesus warns his own disciples to never lose sight of the master's return. The unfaithful servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. Luke 12:25 and thus the unfaithful servant ceases to have a profound sense of the Lord's call and presence and watchfulness over his life and so he gets sloppy makes bad decisions and dishonors the Lord fourth the wicked man's words are trouble and deceit verse 3 and this is no surprise for men speak as they are spoken to in the depths of their heart transgression speaks to the wicked in verse 1 and now out of the overflow of his own troubled and deceived heart the wicked man speaks transgression trouble and deceit into the world fifth the wicked man pursues evil conduct verses 3 and 4 it says he has ceased to act wisely and do good he plots trouble while on his bed he sets himself in a way that is not good he does not reject evil his conscience is no longer tender his heart is not sensitive to wisdom he has sold himself to do evil he's always thinking about the next heist the next fling the next high the next scheme the next victim his whole life is a picture of anti-repentance the Lord instructs sinners cease to do evil learn to do good in Isaiah chapter 1 but the unrepentant sinner doesn't reject evil and ceases to do good when David is on his bed he remembers the Lord Psalm 63 6 but the wicked man plots trouble while on his bed the wise man makes a straight path for his feet Hebrews 12 but the evildoer sets himself in a way that is not good and now moving to the second section verses 5 to 9 David wants nothing to do with the way that is not good David knows that the way of the wicked will perish David's desire is to flourish like a well-watered tree in the garden of the Lord and so in this second section David reflects on the greatness of the Lord's steadfast love and it's really interesting what David does here because we might have expected that after he reflected on the nature of the wicked man that he would reflect on the nature of the righteous man but he doesn't do that now there are places where he does do that but he doesn't do that here here instead of reflecting on the nature of the righteous man he reflects on the greatness of the Lord's steadfast love and of course the Lord's steadfast love is in fact the firm foundation beneath the feet of the righteous man 
A truly upright man is upright not because he's cranked out moral goodness from his own sinful heart, but because he's discovered the steadfast love of the Lord is cascading over him like a waterfall. The first thing that David tells us is that the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness are extensive. Verse 5, how extensive? Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. The Lord's steadfast love, his hesed, his kindness. It's in the heavens. It's vast in its scope. The Lord's faithfulness, his steadiness and trustworthiness is expansive in its range. We are small and finite, but the Lord's steadfast love is bigger than we can imagine. Big grace for little people. We are fickle and subject to so much change, but the Lord's faithfulness is a massive, constant, unswerving fidelity to fickle people like you and me who need a firm place to stand. If you ever feel constricted and trapped by the circumstances of your life, look up into the great big sky above you and remember that the non-constricted, non-trapped, free and expansive, steadfast love and faithfulness of God descends upon you like light from the sun and like rain from the clouds. It says in Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God has big compassion for little people. God has big mercy for sinful people. God has immeasurable love for creatures of dust. So if you're feeling your dustiness, don't lose heart. The second thing that David tells us is that the Lord's righteousness and judgments are massive and awesome. The Lord's righteousness is like the mountains of God, verse 6. Mountains are great and mighty, impressive to behold, beautiful and awe-inspiring. And so it is with the Lord's righteousness, His righteous character, His righteous commands, His righteous actions. The Lord revealed His righteous commandments to Israel at Mount Sinai. The Lord revealed the righteous one to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord revealed His righteous salvation to mankind at Mount Calvary. If you treat the Lord's righteousness and His righteous decrees revealed in Scripture like a commonplace item, like hand soap. Useful, but not captivating. If you treat the Lord's righteousness that way, then you don't understand the Lord's righteousness. But if you treat the Lord's righteousness and His righteous decrees like a breathtaking mountain range that captivates you and rivets your attention and calls you onward and forward and upward, then you're on the right track. Continuing with verse 6, the Lord's judgments are like a great deep. A massive body of water is also impressive to behold, beautiful, awe-inspiring, even intimidating. Furthermore, you can see the surface of the water, but who can plumb the depths? Can you plumb the depths of the sea? 
Can you plumb the depths of the Lord's judgment, the Lord's just decrees, the Lord's wise decisions and righteous punishments? Perhaps David, as he wrote this part of the psalm, was thinking about the great flood in Genesis chapter 7 when the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. The entire world was engulfed in water and became a great deep and the whole thing was a sobering and overwhelming instance of the Lord's righteous judgment. At the same time, what did the Lord do through the great flood? He saved both man and beast. David concludes verse 6 of Psalm 36, man and beast you save, O Lord. The Lord saved mankind through Noah and Noah's family and he saved the beasts through the representative animals that were with Noah on the ark. The Lord designed human beings to have dominion over all of the animals. And so when the Lord saves mankind, he saves man's dominion that life might flourish under man's godly and humble leadership. After the floodwaters receded and a new day began, the Lord established his covenant with Noah and with Noah's offspring and with all the animals, it says in Genesis chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And the sign of this covenant was God's bow, the rainbow. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Genesis 9, verses 13 to 15. With the Lord's righteous judgments always in mind, human beings are, are supposed to see the rainbow in the clouds of heaven and they're supposed to see and savor the Lord's mercy your steadfast love O Lord extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds the Lord's steadfast love moving on to verses 7 and 8 is precious protection and plentiful provision how precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. God's steadfast love is more precious and valuable than a rare and costly jewel. The Lord's steadfast love is better than life, Psalm 63, 3. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord, Psalm 32.10. The Lord blots out our transgressions according to his steadfast love and abundant mercy, Psalm 51.1. The Lord remembers his people according to his steadfast love and not according to our sins, Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7. The Lord shows his steadfast love by hearing our cries, delivering us from distress, and delivering us from the power of the grave. Despite the fact that the wicked make a lot of noise, in Psalm 52, Psalm 52 says, the steadfast love of God endures all day. And the Lord's steadfast love is linked to the fact that he is a reliable refuge for his people, which takes us to the next phrase in verse 7. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Though enemies were rising up against David in Psalm 59, 
David had a steadfast love refuge in the midst of the danger, and it enabled him to sing in the midst of that danger. Psalm 59, 16, and 17 says, But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is good news for wherever you might be this morning. We are vulnerable children who need the wings of God to shelter us, to shelter us in the storm, to shelter us when our enemies plot against us and persecute us, to shelter us from the devil's schemes to lure us off track, to shelter us from levels of temptation that we cannot handle, to shelter us from the consequences of our own sin. The pinnacle of the preciousness of the Lord's steadfast love is when he sheltered us from his own righteous judgment against us because of our sin. He sheltered us by taking the accursed punishment upon himself. Our Lord said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's nothing more tragic when human beings, self-reliant sinners, refuse to take refuge under the wings of the Savior. Jesus lamented over the stubborn-hearted in Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Those who refuse to take refuge in the shadow of the Almighty always end up in a place of desolation. But how different it is for those who make the sovereign Lord their refuge. For the Lord's house is a place of abundance. Verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house. In fact, it is through the abundance of the Lord's steadfast love that we enter into God's house in the first place, Psalm 5-7 tells us. And once there, we find abundant provision. The pantry is well furnished. The kitchen is a culinary and aesthetic delight. You go to the dining room and the serving bowls are always full and the company around the table is tremendous. Sometimes... The abundance of the Lord is indeed physically palpable. But the truth of the matter is that we are ultimately speaking about spiritual realities. David once prayed, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 4, verse 7. And Habakkuk knew how to rejoice in scarce times when he said, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. While his disciples were thinking about physical food, Jesus had another kind of nourishment in mind. 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4, 34. And earlier in John chapter 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman about another kind of water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4, verses 13 and 14. And two chapters later, Jesus told the people about another kind of bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my bread flesh living bread they feast on the abundance of your house living water and you give them drink from the river of your delights and those who follow Christ are nourished as they do the Father's will we believers have in our possession the grace of the gospel the promises of God the presence of the Holy Spirit and the joy of fellowship with one another our great God is a never-ending supply of abundant life for with you is the fountain of life verse 9 furthermore we are not trapped in the darkness like the wicked man of verses 1 to 4 the wicked man is blind to the grandeur of the mountains of God the wicked man's eyes are fixated on the mirror of his own delusions but those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High have their eyes open to the glory of God. In God's light we see light, verse 9. Our eyes are open to the extravagance of God's love, the expansive vistas of God's faithfulness, the mighty mountains of God's righteousness, and the utter transcendence of His judgments. Blessed are your eyes if you see and savor these things. For it means that your vision hasn't been narrowed to glory-reducing mirrors and screens, but instead that your vision has been opened up to behold the beauty of the Lord. In the final section, verses 10 to 12, David concludes with a short prayer request. And his prayer request flows naturally from the first 11 verses. In view of the greatness of the Lord's steadfast love, David wants the Lord's people to actually live in the reality of it. So David prays to the Lord that the Lord would keep sending forth His steadfast love and righteousness to His people. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Verse 10. Believers should never take the experience of God's grace for granted. We should never content ourselves with the faithfulness of God that we experienced yesterday or a week ago or a year ago. But today is the day to feast on the abundance of God's house. Today is the day to drink from the river of God's delight. Today is the day to taste and see once again that the Lord is good and to press on in your walk with Him. At the same time, in view of the presence of wickedness and wicked men, from verses 1 to 4, David prays for protection in verse 11. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. 
The picture here is of arrogant and wicked men who subdue people and drive people away. These arrogant and wicked men embrace evil and practice deceit as they carry out their sinister plots. And the result of their activity is a world of death, which is how the psalm ends. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. The contrast is profound. The upright of heart who know the Lord are nourished by the Lord's life-giving abundance, but the evildoers are cut off and cast down. The moral clarity of which I spoke earlier is literally a matter of life and death. As we gather around the Lord's table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus is our life-giving light. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We remember that Jesus embodies the Lord's steadfast love, and He is the one appointed, the one and only refuge for the children of mankind. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, takes refuge in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. We feast on the abundance of His house, on the bread of life, on the body that was broken so that we might be forgiven and restored. We drink from the river of His delights, from the cup of salvation, from the blood that was shed so that we might be brought into a lasting covenant with the Father. There, at the cross, the righteous stand secure. They are lifted up, unable to fall. There, at the cross, steadfast love and faithfulness and righteous and judgment meet together in holy splendor. And the Lord's goodwill to His people stretches forth with eternal scope. Surely, goodness and steadfast love shall pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you how one psalm after another, just a reality check, invites us to keep the main thing, the main thing, to drink deeply from the well of your grace, to let your grace govern and transform our lives. Father, I pray as we partake of these tokens of mercy, these symbols of Christ's body and blood, you would nourish us and strengthen us for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.